Please be seated. You can turn in your copy of the Word of God to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, as we look at the 13 verses in this passage this morning, great and memorable passage, which essentially has Isaiah's calling as a prophet and the Lord's use of him for a lengthy period of time in the lives of the Israelites. I preached a message from this passage, actually the first eight verses, a couple of years ago, but there are many passages in the Bible, and this is one of them, where you can hold it up and you can see it from different angles, and you have different emphases and different applications of the eternal Word of God for our lives. And as this is the season of Lent, I was stricken by this passage once again, but differently than I was a couple of years ago. If I could summarize the contents of this passage, it would be a bullet statement like this. The season of Lent is a time to reflect on God's presence, His provisions, especially for our sin, and God's plans for those who know Him through faith in Jesus Christ. As I unpack that thesis statement this morning, I want you to notice three things. Number one, the Lord's presence in Isaiah's crisis. And we see that in verses one through four. And then secondly, the Lord's provision for Isaiah's sin. And we see that in verses six and seven, actually verses five through seven. And then thirdly, the Lord's plans for Isaiah's service. And we see that in verses eight through 13. So along with a Outline of the message, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to bless our time of study together. Heavenly Father, we wait on you patiently now and pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts of eternal truths and that, Lord, you would apply these truths to our life so that when we leave this place, every one of us could say, truly, I've been in the presence of the one true and living God. And I know his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith. And I am bent on walking according to his spirit. Lord, make these things realities in our lives. And we'll give you the praise and glory for all you do. And we make our prayer now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, I want you to notice the Lord's presence in Isaiah's crisis. And we see that again in verses 1 through 4. He begins in verse 1a by saying, in the year of King Uzziah's death. Now, King Uzziah was a great king in many respects. He reigned for 52 prosperous years. But by the end of his reign, Uzziah had committed some dreadful acts of trespass. He died as a leper for flouting God's holiness when his heart was lifted up. Second Chronicles 26, verse 16 says this, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense, something that only the priests were to do. And so Uzziah, as he got older, grew proud and arrogant, and the Lord had to humble him. 
Now, it's significant that Isaiah marks the period in verse 1a with Uzziah's death. Ordinarily, a prophet would speak in terms of the king's life. In other words, Isaiah would begin by saying, in the 52nd year of King Uzziah. But it's very significant that he marks not the 52nd year of King Uzziah, but Uzziah's death. Uzziah's death. And to make matters worse, international clouds were gathering at the end of Uzziah's reign. Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria, who took the throne in 745 B.C., was an imperialist. And the small Palestinian states around Assyria were beginning to feel the threat of the Assyrian invasion. And the Assyrians were not a, a very smooth, cultured people. They wrote books on how they would torture those whom they captured. And in the midst of all of this, this impending national crisis, the loss of a king, the uncertainty of the future, God makes his presence known. God makes his presence known. I want you to look carefully at this vision of Isaiah's. The Lord, as it were, opened up the heavens so that he could see reality. In 1, verse 1, he is the great king above all other kings. The text says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Indeed, the Lord sits on a lofty, exalted throne. And the message here is that he is indeed the king of all kings. There is no other leader higher than him. He is exalted above all kings and prime ministers and presidents and despots and any other who desire to reign. The Lord God Almighty made it clear to his prophet, his spokesperson, that I am seated on a lofty, exalted throne. Then he goes on to say the train of his robe filled the temple. In other words, there is no room for any peer. The Lord God Almighty alone sits on the throne, and He is in control. And then you'll notice it says, the Lord's presence is characterized by holiness. Holy, holy, holy. He is altogether different. And He sits enthroned over all people. Events and circumstances. You'll notice in verse 2, his reign extends beyond the earth to the heavenly realms. It says the presence of the seraphim demonstrates a great sense of reverence and worship. They had six wings. With two, they covered their eyes, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. It's just like the hymn we sang this morning. His robe is the light, his canopy is space. That's how vast and immense this God is, the one true and living God. And his reign, once again, is marked by holiness. Holy, holy, holy. You know, the Hebrew language uses repetition to express a superlative. For example, in 2 Kings 25, verse 15, the Bible talks about pure gold. And in the Hebrew language, it appears like this. Gold, gold. <laughs> Another example 
we find in Genesis 14.10 where it talks about tar pits. And the Bible says it was full of tar pits. And so the Hebrew says pits, pits. This is the only place in the entire Hebrew Bible where equality is raised to the power of three. It's as if to say that the divine holiness is so far beyond anything the human mind can grasp that a super superlative has to be invented in order to express it. Also, it's as if to say this transcendent holiness is the total truth about God. See, the word holiness can mean brightness or separateness. And his, that is the Lord's separateness or otherness, offers great comfort in times of crisis. His holiness is therefore his unapproachable and unique moral majesty, before which sinful human beings instinctively quake. In other words, this vision was so wholly beyond human comprehension, and yet the Lord made some of it known to Isaiah. And the seraphim were certainly clear. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Just as holiness is the whole truth about God himself, so it is the whole truth about his eminence in creation. Holiness is the Lord's hidden glory. Glory is the Lord's omnipresent holiness. Now, what does this bring about? Well, in the temple, in verse 4, there is trembling. It's customary reaction of the created order to the presence of the divine. We see doorposts. We see thresholds. We see smoke. The mere declaration of the Lord's holiness is enough to bar entrance and to forbid sight. All this is taking place. Isaiah, in the midst of the uncertainty of the nation, in the midst of the transition of the monarchy, in the midst of the impending invasion of the Assyrians, what does the Lord God Almighty do? He gives a vision that is beyond human comprehension, and yet he makes it known so that his people will find a great, great sense of comfort in the midst of a crisis. You see, in times of crisis, whether it's national, local, or personal, God's people need a fresh vision of God's presence right in the midst of their difficulties. That's why the Bible says, Be still and know that I am God. It's a beautiful picture. You know, in the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus, when Peter and his friends, the other disciples, saw the incredible glory of the Lord Jesus. Peter did what we instinctively do, I think most of the time as Americans. He had to do something. Lord, this is good that we're here. Let's start a building program. Let's make three tabernacles. And the voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, pause. 
stop the busyness. And I want you to meditate on the glory that is in front of you. The Lord delights in demonstrating his glory and majesty. But his children too often don't take the time to be quiet, to be still, and know that he is God. And that's where peace comes from, when you're looking at spiritual realities. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8, the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Now let me apply this for a moment. When you go through a crisis, who do you turn to? Or what do you do? How do you bring a sense of peace in the midst of the storm? The Bible would recommend that we pause and we look at spiritual realities. We can't have an experience like Isaiah. That's why it's recorded for us. So that when we stop and look above at the things above, not at the things on this earth, we begin to realize that he is in control and there is a great, great sense of peace and joy in that. When you're going through sickness, when you get a bad report from the doctor, or you deal day after day with a debilitating disease, this world can't offer anything to lift your spirits, to give you a sense of peace in the midst of that crisis. Only the majesty and the authority and the glory of the living God can bring peace. That's why Isaiah says in chapter 6, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. Peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. When your child goes astray and they begin to break your heart and you long for them to know the Lord and to return to the Lord and they're acting as if they never even knew Him. Let me tell you something. The only peace is to go to the living God whose robe is the light and whose canopy is the space. And He will bring comfort. Whatever you can name as your personal crisis, whatever we look at, when I get up in the morning, I wish I would look at this first before I look at the news. Because all I see is crisis as a result of human sin. And that's why the Lord would say, recognize that I'm present. That's why in Psalm 2 it says, the Lord sees all the people of the earth scheming and plotting. And he says, the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. Why? Because of his greatness and his glory and the fact that the people below are just like grasshoppers. He's in control. You don't have to be. You can rest in him. Well, I must move on. The Lord makes his presence known in the midst of Isaiah's crisis. Let me ask you a question. Is he making his presence known in your crisis? When you go through difficulties, personal, family, work-wise, financial, is he present? He can be. But notice the second thing, and that is the Lord's provision for Isaiah's sin. Now, the Lord makes this dramatic vision known. And you notice... Uh, Isaiah's conviction, first of all. Look at verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, 
For I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The impact of the Lord's presence we see here in Isaiah's personal life. He became stricken by his sin. He confessed, I'm ruined, essentially saying, without hope in and of myself. Now, I want you to note the preoccupation with unclean lips. Some might think this is a rather small area of sinfulness, you know. In fact, he says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I mean, the Bible makes it clear in James that all of us have essentially unclean lips. When we say things, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. But I think there's more going on here. Why does Isaiah say this? It's not just to uh, show a minimal sin. You remember in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus taught his disciples a very powerful lesson about clean and unclean. Because the Pharisees were saying, why, why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? After all, this is of supreme importance that they wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus turned the tables on him. He says, do you not understand that things that go into the mouth, they pass through the stomach and are eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witnesses and slander. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus made it clear that the things that defile a person are not external as much as they are internal. And in another place he said, the mouth speaks of the abundance of the heart. So you should not read this as some sort of minimal sin. God is making known to Isaiah the depth of his sin. Your lips are unclean. You live amongst the people with unclean lips. Why? Because of all of this stuff that is down deep inside of the heart. And it's got to be cleansed. It's got to be cleansed. You see, when Isaiah came in contact with God's holiness, he began to look at his entire life all the way down to the basement of his own heart and said, I am a man of unclean lips. And it's proven by what I say and the things that come out of my mouth. And I live amongst the people that are this way. It's not a minimal sin. It shows the totality of the heart's condition. It's sick. And that's what the Lord's holiness does. When we realize he is altogether separate and different, we begin to look at our own hearts and we realize that we are undone. Well, you see Isaiah's conviction. Notice his cleansing. The Lord doesn't sit there and let Isaiah just revel in his conviction and his misery. One of the seraphs who flew by divine command is sent as the messenger of salvation, to the messenger of salvation, Isaiah. And though all is shrouded from gaze, in this magnificent setting, there is fire and there is an altar. 
The seraphim go and get with tongs a live coal from the altar. The use of tongs shows that this is no pretend fire, but the real thing. In the Old Testament, fire is not a cleansing agent, but the expression of the active, even hostile holiness of God. We see this in Leviticus 10. When Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, offered unauthorized fire on the altar, and they were struck dead. And so these seraphim bring this tongue, and they touch Isaiah's lips with this coal. And it says, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Thus the Lord responds to Isaiah's greatest problem with the gracious provision of cleansing and forgiveness. And the application is clear, ladies and gentlemen. Isaiah's conviction and cleansing should be ours. Now this is challenging because we're living in a time when people are so consumed with themselves more than ever with their own glory, their own success, their own popularity and prosperity. People are so consumed with all of these things that they don't have time and won't take the time to be consumed with what the Bible presents is the greater glory of God. And as we read in 2 Corinthians, we do have glory as human beings, but it results from our vital connection to God through Jesus Christ. You see, God made man holy and upright, but Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And ever since that time, although we're made in the image of God, it's marred. We're fallen image bearers. But the Lord Jesus Christ comes as a perfect God-man and lived and died and rose again. And so now, when we're united to him by faith, we share in the divine glory, as Peter said in his second epistle. It's what gives meaning and purpose and significance that I am returning to life prior to the fall because I am in Christ Jesus. I am covered in his righteousness and I belong by faith to him. And he has cleansed me in the deepest recesses of my heart. He has cleansed my conscience so that I can live free and in the light. What a beautiful concept. Isaiah's conviction and his cleansing need to be ours. Is that true in your life? Have you come face to face with the holiness of God and what Scripture says about his holiness and his hatred of sin, but also about his love in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness and the cleansing that he offers? and the gift of a free, eternal life. Have you participated in that? Well, that's the Lord's provision for Isaiah's sin. Thirdly, the Lord's plans for Isaiah's service. It's a fascinating section. At the very end, in verses 8 through 13, Isaiah hears and responds favorably to God's invitation. Then I heard a voice saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? A reference to the Trinity. Isaiah said, here am I, send me. You see, when you know who your God is, and you have a fresh perspective of his glory, his holiness, and you know that you have been confronted with it, but you've been forgiven of your sins, now you're ready to serve. Now your life has meaning and purpose and significance. And so he says enthusiastically, here am I, send me. Now Isaiah's task will not be easy. 
We know that from verses 9 and 10. In fact, it's doomed to failure from a human perspective or vantage point. Isaiah will be a tool in the hand of the Lord for his sovereign purposes. He's going to warn God's people of the coming invasion and exile by the Assyrians. And the Lord clarifies that most people will reject his mission and message according to God's sovereign activity. That's frightening. You know, the New Testament quotes in our reading this morning in John chapter 12, verse 39 to 40. It quotes Isaiah's words to explain why some people reject the gospel and the good news. The openness of faith is a gift of God's grace. But to be unresponsive, an unresponsive hearer finds the message only hardens him or her to God's gracious purposes. Every time the gospel is preached, it's doing one of two things. It's drawing some closer and closer, but others it is pushing away and hardening. And the attitude is, I don't need that. That's not for me. The point is our primary objective is faithfulness, not success. Isaiah is sent on basically a lifelong mission that is going to be, humanly speaking, looking futile. We need to hear that as a church. The Lord's definitions of failure and success are often not the same as ours. I've said it before, you can drive by a church that just has cars everywhere, and one person driving by will say, oh, look at that church. Man, God is really doing something there. And another person will come along, you know, and they'll say, look at that church. What a compromising situation. They're not preaching the truth. And they'll drive by a little tiny church, just a few people. And one person will say, oh, look at that church. It's dead. There's only 10 or 15 cars in the parking lot. And then another one will come along and say, ah, that church is alive. It's got the few, the remaining, the ones who are orthodox there. That's a good church. Point is, we don't know. (laughs) We don't know what the Lord is doing. But we do know that our definitions of failure and success are often askew because the Bible doesn't focus on those things. The Bible focuses on faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is another reason for the glorious vision at the beginning. The outcome of our life must be for God's glory and not our glory. And when you're living for God's glory, you are truly free. And you can laugh at yourself. (laughs) You can live with ease around others because you're seeking to be faithful, not successful, or not to avoid failure at all costs. Sometimes the Lord brings about success through failure. Isn't that so? We have to learn to be dependent upon Him. And Isaiah's main task is to witness God's truth to God's people. And he must be willing to trust the Lord for the outcome. This is his difficult task. And notice it's going to be for some long duration. Next question he asks in verse 11, I believe, is, Lord, how long? (laughs) How long do I have to do this? Preach and teach to people who will not listen to me. And the Lord gives him an answer, and it's way into the future. In fact, it's going to be after his death. He's never really going to see the fruit of his labor. But it doesn't matter to Isaiah, because he has come face to face with the glory 
of God. Now that will set you free in ministry. We pastors can go through a lifetime of ministry. And ministry is hard. I don't think there's another position on the face of the planet where there's more disappointment. More dreams shattered. But if you are playing for an audience of one and you're seeking to be faithful to Jesus Christ, then he gives you the grace and the power to continue on to be faithful to him. Let me say something to you young people too. Often we get the, con the terms calling and vocation confused. Many people live their entire life trying to figure out their vocation. Your vocation is what you do to make a living. But your calling as a Christian is first and foremost to bear witness to the activity of Jesus Christ on the cross, his resurrection, and in your life personally because you have a personal relationship with him. Now some of us have a vocation of being a pastor, a plumber, an electrician, a doctor, an artist. There are all sorts of vocations. But we all have the same sense of calling. And that is we're called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. Are you fulfilling that? Our primary objective is faithfulness. And our main task, our calling, is to witness the truth of Almighty God. And that's what Isaiah did. And notice there's a ray of hope at the end of verse 13. God's discipline will leave only a remnant of his people, the holy seed. Like a single stump left after a forest fire, the remaining believers are set apart for God by the same grace that saved Isaiah. And they are heirs of God's promises to Abraham, and thus the only hope for the whole world. Once again, we see the reality of despise not small beginnings. I don't know all the Lord is doing in this church. I don't know all that he's doing in your life. But I do know that if you and I remain faithful to him, he will accomplish his objectives, not only for our lives, but for his church. Isaiah saw God's glory. That's why John quotes Isaiah. Because what Isaiah saw in this Incredible vision was a picture, a foretaste of the living Christ. Isaiah saw God's glory, and Christ made the glory of God manifestly known by his life, his death, and resurrection. And he calls all, men and women, boys and girls, to put their faith and trust in him as Savior. Have you done that today? Let's pray together. Lord, we give thanks for your mighty work and your existence among us. And we thank you, Lord, that we live in an absurd world that tries to discount you and your presence. But we do know the truth. And I pray that you would drive that truth home to us today and encourage us with it. Help us, Lord, with the eyes of our heart to see these spiritual realities of your presence your provisions for forgiveness of our sins, and your great plan for our life, whatever it is. Help us to trust you, Lord. Bless us now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.